Well, certainly you know there would be no Memorial Day if there were no wars. And that's the reason that we have our armed forces. That's the reason that we honor those who have served and, and uh, remember those who have died either in battle or since then. And war has always, of course, been a part of the human experience. And you read history books and they are full of war stories. Certainly we know in America it's always, war has always been a part of the American experience, from the Revolution to the Civil War to World War I and World War II to Vietnam to the War on Terror and lots of things in between. There have been wars fought, and and certainly that's been a part of our experience. And we faced a variety of, of enemies, the British, ourselves, the Germans twice, Japanese, the, uh, the various terror networks now that are so hard to identify. and Many soldiers have faced those enemies face-to-face. Maybe some of you in this room reflect on your service and stories that you don't want to tell, but memories that are there of combat face-to-face. Some of you have experienced that. There are others who maybe were not directly involved in the fighting, and, and, and somehow maybe that Maybe you failed to realize, I think I do this, failed to realize the seriousness of the battle, the dangers, the horrors of the war, because you're not directly involved, because maybe you forget that there's actually a war going on in a particular period of time or part of the war. It's easy to do that, certainly. In an even greater and, I think, more real way, war has always also been a part of the experience of God's people. And I'm speaking not of war in the physical sense, but war in the spiritual sense. And certainly, as long as man has existed, he has been involved in a spiritual battle against his enemy who wants nothing less than his absolute destruction to destroy anything that God has created. Some have forgotten about this, no doubt. Some have ignored it. But some here this morning know how real that spiritual battle is. You carry around with you scars from the battle, from things that have happened in your life that have been caused by some spiritual force that maybe have left you with broken relationships, broken hearts, emotional, mental, and sometimes even physical scars. Others, maybe we've forgotten about that, but some of you know how real it is. You're keenly aware. You have awful memories of those stages of life. You maybe come today and feel like you have enemies on all sides. And they're closing in on you, and you don't quite know what to do. My goals today, very quickly to move through this, are very simple. I hope to open your eyes to the real battle that is going on, the spiritual battle that is unseen but is just as real and more important than any physical battle that we've ever faced. I hope to open your eyes to that. I hope also to give you a strategy. How do you handle that? Leaving here today, what can you do to be engaged properly in that spiritual battle? And then... Thirdly, I hope you leave not depressed that, oh, well, I'm in a battle, but certainly you leave confident that you have, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have already gained victory through him. The spiritual battle, of course, uh, in it, the goal of our enemy is to keep our eyes and our hearts closed to the light of Jesus Christ, to keep us from knowing the truth and from then believing the truth and then living out the truth. Certainly that's his goal is to do that to us. Uh, I want you to... Think with me today and understand that all of our problems, all the issues of life, have a spiritual root. Nothing is disconnected from the spiritual world. Whether you are a 
consider yourself a spiritual person or not, whether you consider yourself a believer in God or a believer in Jesus Christ or not, all of your problems, all of the issues of life have at their root a spiritual origin. All the problems that you face, whether they are mental, emotional, or vocational, maybe at work, or anything in your family, or relationships, or psychological issues, all of those have at their root a spiritual issue, a spiritual origin. And the sooner we realize that all of life is connected in this spiritual battle, I believe the sooner we gain victory through Jesus Christ. And so I hope today to open your eyes to that. You know, it's often the case that the soldiers that we have honored so far today and that our country honors this weekend have at one time or another found themselves in a foxhole, dug in, trying to defend themselves, maybe trying to gain a forward position, maybe just trying to avoid enemy fire, trying to be safe, trying to survive. And I think much like that, the spiritual life is the same way. You're often in a foxhole, it seems, with bullets and bombs and so on firing around you and exploding and you just feel like I'm dug in. How do you survive there? I'm thankful that the Lord does not leave us in the dark. You cannot read the Bible and believe in a God who is distant, a God who is absent from the affairs of daily life, a God who does not care about his people. You can't read the Bible and believe that. Now you can avoid the Bible and make your own assumptions, but you cannot read the Bible and assume that God wants nothing to do with his creation because God has revealed to us not only himself through the word of God, through the Bible, but he's also revealed the issues of life. How do you handle life in a foxhole? How do you survive when the battle rages? I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. I hope you brought a Bible today. Ephesians chapter 6 over in the New Testament. We're going to find out this morning... How do you survive in that foxhole of life? When the battle rages, what do you do? Some of you are keenly aware that a battle is raging around you. Maybe this will answer some questions this morning. Look with me at verse 10 of chapter 6 in Ephesians. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by His vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this, but against those rulers, rather, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take the shield of faith, and with it you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. With every prayer and request, pray at all times in the Spirit, and stay alert in this with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. For some of you, this will be a familiar passage of Scripture. You've heard about the armor of God. You know about the spiritual battle. For others, maybe this will be brand new. I hope not to give you this morning a detailed analysis of the entire armor of God. I want to give you a broad overview of that and and at the same time help you to understand what we can put into practice. So speaking in military terms today, here's what I think we need to remember in that foxhole of life. First of all, your objective is simply this, stand firm. Your objective in the battle of life is to stand firm. In verse 11, it says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand 
Verse 13, this is why this, so you may be able to resist or stand in the evil day, having prepared everything to take your stand. Verse 14, stand, therefore. It repeats that over and over and over again. Paul is telling us, the writer of this particular letter, telling us that our objective, you want to know what the goal is for you in life as a Christian, it is to stand firm. That has the connotation of, of holding a position during an attack. Maybe you've been there before, you're a soldier. And you know that your job was to simply hold that position. Don't give it up. And that's what Paul uses. His terminology is basically that. Holding your position is the goal. Standing firm, remaining faithful. You realize that's God's definition of success? We've messed it all up. drives me crazy. I love America, but it drives me crazy because we've redefined what God originally said was success, was faithfulness to Him. Now we've redefined it, and it's get all you can. It's it's be the most successful business person or be the most famous or have the most money. Is there anything inherently wrong with those things? No. But it's not what God says is true success. You can have success without having any of that stuff. You realize that in God's eyes? If you simply remain faithful and obedient to Him. And as I said, I'm thankful for the country that we live in that we have freedom to do just that, to be faithful and obedient to God in every situation. And so that's God's definition of success. This Objective of standing firm simply begins when Paul says, be strengthened by the Lord. It, it only happens through daily communion with God. You know, I'm a baseball fan and, and used to play a little bit here and there. And you realize that every team, this saying goes around in baseball, your team is only as good as your next day's starting pitcher. That's it. You can have a great game one day, and if your next day's starting pitcher isn't any good, guess what's going to happen? Bad day. You're going to lose. Why? Because you're only as good as your next day's starting pitcher. In the Christian life, you realize you're only as strong as your time spent in the Lord that day. Yesterday's strength won't carry over. You can't wait for tomorrow's strength. We have to gain it each and every day through the Lord Jesus Christ by daily interaction with Him. And so Paul says, be strengthened in the Lord so that you can stand firm. That only comes through daily communion with the Lord. Second thing is this, your enemy is powerful but defeated. Your enemy is powerful but defeated. In this battle of life, this spiritual battle that rages, your objective is to stand firm. Your enemy is powerful but defeated. Paul says our enemy is not flesh and blood, but is the rulers, the authorities, the world powers of this darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. He says resist in the evil day. Your enemy is powerful but defeated. When he says our battle, he's talking about this hand-to-hand combat. In fact, he uses a word that is equated really in ancient times to wrestling. And I'm not talking about the wrestling that you see on television. Now, some of you are huge wrestling fans, and I apologize to you that, that I, you know, I'm of the persuasion that it's not real. And some of you would argue, I had a college roommate, he got so mad when we used to make fun of him. We really did. We made fun of him over and over because he loved that wrestling. We would tell him it's not real, and he'd want to wrestle us right there. You know, he's on the top bunk ready to jump off, you know. But, but Paul uses the word, it's not about that kind of wrestling, but about the Greco-Roman wrestling, the stuff you might see in the Olympics or in high school or college wrestling. And some of you maybe participated in that. You put on that less than flattering outfit, you know what I'm talking about, and you got in the ring and you had the helmet on and you kind of scrap around with the other person there in the ring and you try to pin them and pull some moves here and there and, that's what he's talking about. This hand-to-hand combat, you realize that that, that kind of wrestling, though I've never done it, I, I've, I've seen it and, and, and watched it enough to know it's based on deception. 
You try to fake one way and yet do something else. It's based on trickery and quickness. And so when Paul says, look, our battle, he's, a, he's identifying that that's really what the battle is about. The battle involves, on the part of our enemy, trickery and deception and quickness and trying to get us before we're ready for that. And so it's this hand-to-hand combat. He says, our battle is not, though, against flesh and blood. What does that mean? Well, that means your battle is not against your boss. Your battle, young people, is not against your parents. Parents, your battle is not against your, your children. It's not against your coworkers. It's not against your family members. Not against the government. It's not even against the foreign enemies. The real, real, real battle Paul is talking about here, but those others certainly exist. He's talking about the real battle. We, we need to look past just what we see and look to the unseen. He says the real battle is against Satan and his dark forces. You think that your boss is out to get you. Get an idea of what Satan wants to do to you, and your boss will pale in comparison. Because every situation that arises that seems to be against you has at its root something from Satan himself. So our enemy is unseen but very powerful. He wants to destroy everything about Jesus, everything Jesus has created, everything he has done in your life. And so that's our fight against Satan and his army of darkness. But Paul lets us know that they are organized. What does he say? Against the rulers and authorities and so on. He's not trying to give us a, you know, a demonology to to help us understand every single layer. He's just saying, look, they're organized. They know what they're doing. Satan is powerful. He's organized. John MacArthur, one of my favorite pastors, he says that there are no less than nine ways that Satan attacks Christians. Maybe maybe you can relate to these. Let me read these to you. Number one, he attempts to malign God's character and credibility, just like he did with Adam and Eve, trying to get you to distrust God and his word. You been there? Number two, he tries to undermine present victory by generating trouble that makes life difficult thereby tempting us to forsake obedience to God's standards and calling. And his most extreme tactic in that is persecution. You've seen that in the the history of the church over and over and over again. Number three, Satan attacks Christians through doctrinal confusion and falsehood. He wants us to remain uneducated about the truth of the Bible, keep you from studying and understanding the Scripture. So those moments when you are trying to read the Bible and you say, I just don't understand it, you're involved in a spiritual battle. It's not because the Bible is too hard to understand. That's not the point at all. The Bible was meant to be understood, and we have tools now today, more so than we've ever had, to help you understand it. But you're involved in a spiritual battle. When you read the Scripture and you walk away and nothing changes, a spiritual battle is taking place. Number four, Satan attacks Christians by hindering Christian service to God. He, he opposes every faithful life and every effective ministry. You realize that if we begin, as Elm Grove Baptist Church, to have effective ministry take place in our church, Satan's going to oppose it. At every, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be that we just throw open the doors and automatically people just flock in. It's going to take work because we are against a spiritual enemy. It doesn't want to see that happen whatsoever. It wants to keep people at home. It wants to keep people away from Jesus. It doesn't want them here. So we're involved in a spiritual battle. Number five, Satan attacks Christians by causing divisions. You've probably seen that before. Maybe in this church, another church you've been a part of. I know I've seen it in various churches among Christian families and friends and so on. And that's why Jesus prayed over and over and over for unity. Look at the prayers of Jesus. He prays for unity among his followers. Number six, by persuading them to trust their own resources, making us think that we can do the Lord's work in our own power and our own knowledge. Number seven, by leading them, Christians, into hypocrisy, making us more concerned about our reputations than our holiness. By leading Christians, number eight, into worldliness, things like materialism, self-satisfaction, self-indulgence, and contentedness in the things of this world. And then, MacArthur lists number nine, and he says this encompasses all others, that Satan tries to attack Christians 
by leading them to disobey, directly disobey God's word. Maybe you've seen those attacks in your own life, and you say, you know, I know that's real. I know I have a powerful enemy. Certainly our enemy is powerful, he's unseen, but I want you to know that's not the end of the story. I put there, he's powerful, but defeated. If you go to the end of the Bible, and you read what happens in the end times, there's one thing that is expressly clear. You may be able to argue about a lot of things about the book of Revelation. Well, this means this, or that means that. There's one thing you cannot argue about. And if you read it and understand it as God's word, you cannot argue that God wins. That's it. You cannot argue that. Ultimately, no matter how it happens, no matter what your interpretation of the specific events are, God wins. Satan ultimately is defeated. Evil ultimately is removed from our experience as believers, and we ultimately gain victory in heaven forever. So our enemy, even though he is powerful, even though he may have influence now, God is still in control, and he wins. But even though the outcome is secure, even though we know what happens at the end, there are still battles to be fought along the way. You say, well, why doesn't God just take care of it all? I'm not God. I don't know. I don't know why God hasn't sent Jesus back yet. I don't know. But I do know God is in control. He wins, and yet there are still battles to face. And so he gives us, thankfully, some weapons along the way. Your weapons are the armor of God. Again, I'm not going to give you detailed analysis on each one of these. I just want you to kind of get a brief overview very quickly. All the things in verses 14 to 18 show us what God has given us for protection, for defense, for fighting while we're in that foxhole called life. The armor of God is to be put on and to be lived out. That's how we take full advantage of it. Not only do we put it on and say, well, I'm a Christian, I, I sort of wear this around, but we have to live it out. And that's hard to do sometimes when the battle gets intense. But Paul lists for us these familiar pieces of the armor, the belt of truth. The belt for the Roman soldier was something that, that went around his, uh, his waist, obviously, and it sort of held his tunic and everything else in place. He would carry his, his sheath or his sword there, and so without his belt, he was unprepared. One of the signs that a soldier was taking a day off then is he'd remove his belt. He wasn't ready for war, wasn't ready for battle. And so truth, Paul says, is how the Christian can always stay ready. Truth ties it all together. What kind of truth? God's truth from the Bible. That's what we're talking about. For the Christian, truth is everything. If we don't have truth, we have nothing. If the Bible is not true, we're living a pointless existence. Paul even said that. What's well, the point in living the way we live if the Bible's not true? Who cares? But it is true. And truth is everything for the Christian. It ties everything together. It keeps you moving forward. It's the reason you have hope. Without truth, you're easily blown around, not really knowing what to believe. Maybe you've been there. And if Satan does anything, he attacks God's truth. Think about what he did from the very beginning when he tempted Adam and Eve. Eve said, if, if we eat from this tree, God said, we'll surely die. And what, is, what, is, what does Satan say in the form of the serpent? You, you won't die. What did he attack? Truth. God's truth. So the belt of truth, Paul says, helps us stand firm. The second thing is the breastplate of righteousness. In, in this particular version, it says righteousness like armor on your chest. It protects the heart and the lungs and other vital organs. In ancient Jewish thought, it was thought that the heart represented the mind and the will and that the gut represented the emotions. And so righteousness is what, what protects us in those areas. Surely Satan attacks those areas, no question. Righteousness, that daily right living, 
that obedience to Scripture, it brings joy. It reduces our problems. You realize most of your problems, most of my problems, are simply because I don't live in the right way, the way that I'm disobedient to God's Word. That's where the majority of my problems come from. So the majority of my problems aren't somebody else, it's me. Realize that maybe that's a truth that some of us would say, whoa, wait a minute, now I've never thought about that before. The majority of your problems are, are you. We love you, but, but you're the problem. How about that? How's that for encouragement today from the pastor? You know what? You probably love me, but guess what? I'm the problem. It's not you, it's me. And it's not me, it's you. It's all of us. Do you get that? The majority of our problems come from our own sin, our own disobedience to God's Word. So righteousness puts us in position for blessing. It keeps us from from having the enemy find a consistent weak point for attack. You got an area of your life where you're not really obedient to God, where is Satan going to attack you? Right there, because he knows you're not protected with righteousness. If he can get into your mind, into your will, into your emotions, he's going to do it. Righteousness, right living helps protect us from that. Then he says, having your feet sandaled with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Shoes, it goes without saying, are huge for soldiers. They're very important. Without proper footing, you either can't, make your maneuvers, you can't march, you can't stand firm. For the Christian, if our objective is to stand firm, then we only do so when we stand on the gospel of peace, Paul says. Confident in God's love for us, knowing that we are forgiven and that we have peace with God. And that's the footing you have as a believer in Jesus Christ. The next thing he says is the shield of faith. Take it up in every situation. That's just basic trust in God, daily living according to trust in God. And with that, he says, you'll extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy. Those things that are quick, that dart, that dart into your mind, that, that set things on fire. Those unexpected, targeted attacks, most often in the form of temptation. Realize, in every temptation, the question is this, do I trust God? It's not, can I resist? It's, do I trust God? Because if I trust God and what he says, then I will trust that his way is best, not this way that I'm tempted to go. In every area of life, whether it's finances, whether it's purity, whatever it may be, do I trust God? So the shield of faith says when those arrows of temptation start to fly, whatever it is, no, I trust God. I will not doubt his ways. I put up my shield of faith and I extinguish those flaming arrows. He also talks about the helmet of salvation. And that is to protect the head, obviously a helmet, from a devastating injury. An injury that maybe to your arm would not be life-threatening, but to your head would destroy you. And Paul draws that parallel. One of Satan's greatest attacks, obviously, is to get Christians to doubt their salvation. So we put on the helmet of salvation. No, I stand firm and I stand complete in Jesus Christ. Even though as a Christian I sin, that does not mean that my salvation is gone. Because I have placed my faith in Him and Jesus covers my sin. But Satan's going to point to failures, to sins, to unresolved problems, to health issues, to relationships, anything he can do to get you discouraged and to get you to doubt God, anything whatsoever. So we put on that helmet for protection. And then finally he says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now the sword he refers to is probably about 18 inches long. And it was, it was kept right at the side of the Roman soldiers. So this is not a big sword that you'd see somewhere in, you know, in, in ancient medieval times or something where they take this big sword and try to swing it around. This sword was both offensive and defensive. It's ready. They pull it out, block something, and then they can also use it for an offensive weapon. The key is that it was at their side, ready to be used, ready to be handled. 
He says that sword of the Spirit is God's Word. And so it goes without saying that when you look at the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, how does he come back to Satan when Satan attacks him? What does he use in response? Not a trick question. Scripture. And he doesn't use it and say, well, you know, I think somewhere back in the Old Testament, God said this. Or, you know, I think I remember in Sunday school a long time ago, I heard a story about a guy who did this or that. You know what, you know what Jesus uses? Specific scriptures that he had in his brain. If you are a person who is serious about defending yourself from the attack of Satan, I would strongly encourage you that the only way to do that, according to the way that Jesus did it, is to have specific scriptures in your brain. How does that happen? Read the scripture, memorize it, and use it. I'm not saying that's easy. It takes discipline to live the Christian life. It takes discipline to have victory on a daily basis. But if you want that, Jesus showed us the example. Have it in your brain. Use it as a weapon of defense and a weapon of offense. And so we see that our weapons are the full armor of God. And then we look at our allies. In every battle, you have allies. If you've been a soldier, you know you've got people on your side. And thank God for those people that are on your side. If you're out there by yourself, what a miserable and lonely experience. Your allies as a Christian are all the saints, Paul says. He says, be in prayer at all times in the Spirit. Stay alert and with perseverance and intercession for all the saints. You're not alone. You're not alone in the battlefield. You're not alone as a Christian. Satan's, one of his tactics, I really believe, is to try to get you over in a corner and just pound you. Just make you feel like you're alone, make you lonely, and so on. But you look around the battlefield. You may be dug into your foxhole, but you look over there, and you look over there, and you look back, and you look forward, and there's somebody else there with you. It's the beauty of the church. That's the beauty of coming each Sunday morning. There's no guilt trip if you're not here this morning, but I want you to know that, that if, if you're a person who says, well, church, take it or leave it, you're missing out on the allies that you have in the battle. You're missing out on the people that are there with you that, that can help you get through life. Paul says be in prayer for all the saints, all those people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. I think we ought to encourage one another through our words, through just how we live, showing somebody it's possible, you can do it. And also through our prayers. How often have you prayed for somebody that maybe sits close to you in the sanctuary or somebody that you haven't seen in a while? Lord, help them be faithful. Help them to stand firm in the battle. Because if one falls, we all fall. But if one succeeds, we all succeed. And then finally, your leader is in the foxhole with you. He's not somewhere in the, in the back of the battlefield eating his lunch while you or out on the front lines. He's not taking a break. Jesus Christ, your leader, your Savior, if you have placed your faith and given your life to Him, says He's in the foxhole with you. How do I know that? Because He sent His Holy Spirit to live inside of you. He says, I'll never leave you, never forsake you. The Bible says He's a friend that sticks closer than any brother or any, any person you've ever known. Jesus is in the foxhole with you. He's not distant. He showed it by coming to earth. You realize that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is quite possibly to me the most amazing thing I could ever conceive. Now realize that the cross and his resurrection are just as amazing, but he left heaven. God left heaven where he was worshipped incessantly, continually, all the time. Left heaven to come here, take on the form of one of us, be misunderstood, be ignored, be persecuted and killed, so that he could demonstrate his love toward us 
in that, what does the Bible say? That while we were still sinners, he died for us. You realize the incredible nature of that? It struck me this week that I often think, well, yeah, Jesus was born and he came to earth. That's God leaving heaven, coming in the form of Jesus Christ to live as one of us in our miserable existence. And not just that, but to take everything, every hateful thing we could ever do to him and literally to become sin on our behalf and down across for us. He proved he's in the foxhole with us. He's not distant. He's not out there saying, hey, good luck, go get him. He's there with us. He has taken up residence, the Bible says, through his Holy Spirit in each and every believer, and he goes with you into the battle. And praise God for that. So what do you do? It's very simple. I want these words just to resonate with you as you leave today here in a few minutes. Have faith. Stand firm. Have faith. Stand firm. You may always seem to be in a foxhole with battle all around you. Have faith. Have faith in the one who saved you. Have faith in the one who has victory. Have faith in the one who ultimately wins. And stand firm. That's what God's success is all about. Stand firm in the midst of the battle. No matter what happens, when things are at their worst, have faith and stand firm. I guarantee you'll be tested in that this week. You'll be tested to doubt God. God, this doesn't make any sense. That preacher doesn't even know what he's talking about. Lord, he doesn't live my life. He doesn't understand what I deal with. You'll be tested this week. Will you have faith? Will you trust God in what he's doing? And will you stand firm? Not because you're so good. Let me just try harder. But no, because Jesus lives inside of me. Jesus, take control here and stand firm on my behalf. Live through me. Jesus, give me victory as you fight through me, as you fight for me. We have victory because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One symbol of that is what he instituted the night before he was arrested. And we know it now as the Lord's Supper. We have victory and it's demonstrated through that, through the symbolism of the bread and the cup. that Jesus gave his body and his blood for us, demonstrating once and for all that he has power over sin, that he is the only one who could take our place on the cross. And so today we will participate before we leave in this way to remember this memorial to Jesus Christ. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember, don't ever forget what I've done for you. Ronnie made a great point. Let's not forget those who have gone before us. And in that same way, and even greater, let's never forget what Jesus has done for us. And so this morning, we'll participate in the Lord's Supper as a way to remember what he did on the cross a way to celebrate our victory in the battle of life. It's possible, you know, to be successful in in this life, but ultimately to lose in the end. You realize that? Luke chapter 9, verse 25 says, What does it profit a person? What does it benefit a person if he gains the whole world yet forfeits or loses himself? The only way that you can take hold of the ultimate victory is to give your life completely to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a person here today who hasn't done that. And I would encourage you, as the elements of the Lord's Supper are passed out in just a few moments, to consider which side are you on? Which path are you on? Are you on the path of victory that ultimately comes through knowing Jesus Christ, through receiving His free gift of salvation by placing your faith in Him? That's the path of victory, both here in this life and in the one to come. Or are you on the path of destruction, though you may not have realized it before now, 
that you may gain this whole world and lots and lots of things. You may have a great life, you think. But one day, one day, the Bible says, those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ will ultimately face the same fate as Satan himself. Cast out forever into the lake of fire, the Bible says. Forever gone from the presence of God. God doesn't want that from you. <laughs> he, wants, he wants you with, with him in heaven forever. But you've got to come on his terms. You've got to come through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's it. What do I have to do? Place your faith in him. What do I have to do? Trust him. Do I need to join the church? No, no, no. You trust him first. <laughs> Everything else falls into place. And so this morning, as our guys come, I'd like to invite you fellas to join me down front. Danny's going to play just a little bit. I hope that during this time that you'll reflect on where you stand with God. Get your life right with God through simple faith in Jesus Christ. Confess to him this morning any sin that may be in your life. Anything in your life that you say, you know, I just know that's not right. And as Danny plays and as these guys hand out the elements, won't you spend a few moments with God taking care of business with him?